Pastor Chris's podcast. Christmas is the celebration of the long-awaited period, uh, the long-awaited birth of the Messiah. The Jewish people, 2,000 years ago, yearned for the Messiah to come and to save them from their oppression. God intended Israel to be his chosen people to represent him to the whole world. But unfortunately, Israel broke their covenant with God again and again, leading to their downfall and their disgrace. The kingdom of God did not stand in Israel because the citizens of Israel were unfaithful to God. Foreign empires took over and subjected God's people to foreign rule. Yet God promised to send a Messiah to save them from the consequences of their sin and to restore the kingdom of God on earth forever. And in this message series, we are getting an overview of the four major periods in the history of Israel, four epochs that led to Israel's downfall and their deep need and longing for God's Messiah. As we go through, I hope that you will recognize some of Israel's story in your own life. For we are also waiting for the Messiah to come. Jesus the Messiah came as a baby born in a manger 2,000 years ago. However, just as Jesus promised, he will return in the clouds to establish his kingdom on earth. So as we prepare for Christmas, we prepare for the second coming of Christ. But let's review the history of Israel with a responsive reading. You can remain seated, but the words to the reading are on the screen. The Lord our God is mighty to save. He rescued Israel from Egyptian from the Egyptian empire. At Mount Sinai, God made a sacred covenant with Israel. The Lord led Israel to Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. He appointed Joshua to lead Israel in battle. The Lord granted land to all twelve tribes of Israel. Joshua warned Israel. Do not become like the Canaanites they conquered or worship their gods. The people promised to be faithful and settled in the promised land. And so the second epoch of Israel begins, the epoch of the judges. And I want to read, as a summary of this epoch, Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said to the Israelites, I brought you out of Egypt into this land and swore to give, that I swore to give to your ancestors. And I said I would never break my covenant with you. For your part, you were not to make any covenants with the people living in the land. Instead, you were to destroy all their altars. But you disobeyed my command. 
Why did you do this? So now I declare that I will no longer drive out the people living in your land. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a constant temptation to you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The epic of the judges lasted about 350 years, from the death of Joshua until the death of the prophet Samuel. During this time, Israel did not have a central government. Israel functioned as a loose confederate of 12 tribes who believed that God was their king. They didn't have a man who was their God. God was their king. And so the 12 tribes spread out through the promised land. And uh, there was no centralized government to um, make them all do things the same way. The term judges is a little bit misleading for us today. They use the term judges in the Old Testament. But when we think of a judge, we think of someone who sits in a courthouse and hears cases and decides who's right and who's wrong and makes a verdict. Sometimes the judges in the Old Testament did that, but that was not their primary purpose. A judge was a tribal leader that God chose to consolidate tribal support throughout the entire kingdom of Israel. So because they were, they, they were a loose federation of tribes, if an enemy rose up, to attack Israel, there was no one to lead Israel all together as one nation. So when this happened, God would raise up a judge to unite all the tribes together to fight as one against their enemies. And that is what we mean when we talk about a judge in the Old Testament period of the judges. Now, although all of the Canaanite kings had been defeated there were still Canaanites living in the land. As we come to the close of the book of Joshua, we see that the, the land has been conquered. The, all of the, the city-states of the Canaanites have been um, defeated. The kings have been defeated. But there are still Canaanites living in the land. And so the Israelites are to go in, and they're not to begin to worship the gods of the Canaanites or live like the Canaanites. They are to be faithful to God. But there's something that we often miss when we read the Old Testament. We might forget that God loved the Canaanites too. He didn't love the way they worshiped false gods, but he did love them. They were his creation as well. And God longed for the Canaanites also to turn to God and worship him and him alone. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 48 we see what God, how God told the Israelites to treat foreigners that lived among them. Exodus 12, 48 says, If there are foreigners living among you who want to celebrate the Lord's Passover, let all of their males be circumcised. Only then may they celebrate the Passover with you as any native-born Israelite. So when uh, these foreign people were there, God would allow them to become part of his chosen people, but they had to leave behind their foreign gods and all of that, and they had to convert to become an Israelite. Circumcision was the sign that a person 
had rejected their foreign gods and was now an Israelite and was circumcised. They could even celebrate the holy meal of the Jewish people, which was the the Passover festival, but only if they were circumcised and became one of God's chosen people in the Israelite community. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 33 to 34, it tells us this, do not take advantage of foreigners who live among you in your land. Treat them like native born Israelites and love them as you love yourself. Remember that you were once foreigners living in a land in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. So we forget sometimes that God allowed people to convert and become part of Israel. But we know that this is true because sometimes there are famous people mentioned in the scriptures that were part of Israel. For instance, you may remember that there were only two people who lived from the time of the Exodus when they lived, left Egypt all the way until the time that they entered into the promised land. Do you remember who those two people were? One was Joshua and the other was Caleb. And Caleb was not a native born Israelite. One of the only two people who was allowed to go all the way from Egypt to the promised land was not a native born Israelite. Caleb, the Bible tells us, was a Kenizzite, not an Israelite, but he had become an Israelite. Another person that we read about, very famous woman, was Rahab. Rahab was a citizen of the city of Jericho. She helped the spies to enter into the promised land. She converted and became an Israelite. She was the uh, great grandmother of King David. She was also the ancestor of Jesus Christ in the gospels. Um, it, it mentions only a few women in the genealogy of Jesus, one of whom was Rahab, who was not a native born Israelite. And so we see in these examples that God is gracious God welcomes all to his table in his kingdom if they are willing to worship him and him alone. See, God doesn't care about your nationality. God doesn't care about your ethnicity. God cares about your heart. If you leave behind your idols and your false gods and you repent of your sinful behavior, God welcomes you. God welcomes even Canaanites who reject Canaan and turn to Israel. God's plan was for the Israelites to take over Canaan. And they did it little by little. He fought for them so that they could defeat the kings of Israel. But then there was time and space allowed to win the hearts and minds of the Canaanites who still remained in the land. God's hope was that those who were willing would repent and turn to God. The Israelites were supposed to represent the light of God to the heathen Canaanites and to all the world. If Israel had done their job and had worshipped God faithfully, they could have converted all of Canaan into one glorious kingdom of God on earth. But unfortunately, 
God's vision was corrupted by the unfaithfulness of Israel. Once the Israelites entered into the land and got a little peace and prosperity, they got comfortable and lazy. Instead of driving out Canaanite religion, they began to mix their religion with the Canaanites. And so they diluted pure faith in God with false gods and idols. And this would continue to be a problem throughout the history of Israel. And throughout the epoch of the Judges, we see a cyclical downward spiral of morality in Israel. And on the screen, you see the general cycle that we find happening again and again and again in Judges. The Israelites will be living in peace and prosperity, but this leads to complacency. Then Israel will sin and compromise their faith in God, worship the gods of the Canaanites. Third, Israel will experience great distress from foreign oppression as God allows their enemies to chastise them. Fourth, Israel will cry out to God and ask him to rescue them. And finally, God will raise up a judge to fight for them and to deliver them from their enemies. And that will lead them back to a period of peace. And we go around and around and around this cycle again and again and again throughout the book of Judges. But this isn't just a cycle. We look at this view from the top, it looks like a circle. But when you look at it from the side, you see that it is a downward spiral. Each cycle of sin, distress, crying out, and salvation leaves Israel in greater darkness farther from God. So by the end of the book of Judges, the Israelites have fallen so far, they are so morally depraved, one can hardly tell a difference between them and the Canaanites they have replaced. So if you look at the Judges in the very beginning of the book of Judge, people like Othniel and Ehud and Deborah, we see that these are, these are genuinely good people that God has raised up. But then you get to the end of the book and you see someone like uh, Samson. Now, I know in, in Sunday school when we were kids, everybody lifted up Samson as being this great hero. And that's because we were kids and Samson was incredibly strong and it was a good story to tell. But then you turn to the book of Judges and you read about Samson. And I don't know if you're like me, but you read about Samson, and you think this guy was an idiot. He was supposed to be a holy man and he was getting drunk all the time. He's having sex with prostitutes. He was killing people in murderous rages. He was not a good person. But that's because by the end of Judges, the Israelites have fallen so far that that was the best God had to work with. God always comes into our broken world and he works with what he has to work with. And that's what he did in the Judges as well. But it is not the way God wanted the Israelites to be. Well, so what? What difference does that make for us today? Well, one lesson that we need to learn today is about the danger of syncretism. Syncretism is a fancy word, but it simply means the blending together of different religions. Syncretism is rampant in America today. 
It is so pervasive that most people don't even recognize syncretism when they see it. For example, have you seen the bumper stickers that sometimes people have on their cars that have this uh, logo that's on the screen, the coexist logo, where they take religious symbols from all of the different rural religions and they combine them together and to make this word that says coexist. And the idea on the surface seems sort of virtuous. It's the idea that for hundreds of years, people of different religions have fought and killed each other. And can't we all just get along and love one another? Um, And it's a good idea on the surface. Yes, we ought not to kill one another because we believe different or we practice a different religion. That does not make God happy, and that's not what he wants. But we also have to understand that you cannot take all these different religions and just blend them together into one cocktail. People today um, will sometimes tell you, well, all religions are just the same. Um, In the end, they're all leading you to God and to the same place. But this is not really true. Christianity is fundamentally different from all the other world religions. There are some things that are in common with other religions but only when you look at religion on the surface. If you dig even a little bit deeper into the different religions, you will see that they are fundamentally different. The principles that they cherish, the reasons why we do what we do are very different. And this is not something that you can just set aside and, 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 um, disregard it the only way you can disregard it and pretend that all religions are the same is if you practice a very shallow religion but if you become a devout christian or a devout muslim or a devout hindi or buddhist or whatever if you truly dig in to become a devout religious person it will lead you apart from not closer to people of different religions, at least in your belief. It doesn't mean that you cannot be respectful and kind and generous to people that are different from you, but it will lead you in a different direction. But because we live in a time of relative peace and prosperity, we're very much like the Israelites in the period of the judges who looked around and saw these Canaanites who were very different from them. And can't we just all get along? Can't I just reach out to this Canaanite and he can teach me a little bit about his religion and I can teach him a little bit about my religion and we can all mix it together and worship together? It seemed like the easy thing to do, much easier than trying to actually convert someone But that was not what God wanted. God wants the truth. And he wants people to be faithful and true. In order to avoid diluting authentic faith in the one true God, we have to know what 
that faith is. Unfortunately, in our time, we are so synchronistic that we have a really hard time even telling the difference between, between authentic Christian faith and popularized religion as the world around us practices it. What does it really mean to be a Christian? And what is just what we have sort of accepted? One example is that if you ask the general person in our world, what does it mean to be a Christian and to go, you know, to be with God? And they say, well, if you are a good person and uh, do good things, you will be rewarded with entrance into heaven. This is a very common thing that the average person believes about Christianity. But that is absolutely contradiction to what Scripture says. Scripture does not anywhere say, if you are a good person, God will reward you by allowing you into heaven. As a matter of fact, Scripture says the exact opposite of that. Scripture tells us that you cannot be a good person. You cannot do enough good things to earn a place into heaven. In fact, it says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that no one can boast that they have been good enough because it is by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ that you are able to go. Thankfully, as we seek to understand what does it really mean to be authentically a follower of Jesus Christ, God has preserved that for us perfectly in the unadulterated, unchanging scriptures of his Bible. Right here in these sacred pages of God's word are the principles by which we need to live and what we need to believe. And they are the same today as they were 2000 years ago when Christ lived on this earth. Every Christian in our community has the incredible access to this scripture. Many people have multiple copies of this book on the shelves in their house. Or they can go online and they can read it in multiple languages and multiple versions. But how many will actually open the pages of their Bible and learn true Christianity? Because it's so much easier to just listen to what everyone else says in the world and to follow a popular religion that takes a little bit of this and a little bit of that and throws it all together in a blender and makes a sweet, synchronistic religion that is so much easier to swallow that everybody can enjoy and that just makes us all get along and pretend like there aren't any differences among us. But it doesn't really require you to do much. And it doesn't really change you. And it isn't the Lord's perfect plan for you. And it has no power. During the epic of the judges, God was supposed to be Israel's king. They were to be faithful and to obey him. But whenever life got easy, they forgot God. Judges 12, 6 says, In those days Israel had no king, 
All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Now, the writer in Judges is doing something here that you might miss if you're not careful. He's saying two things with this first statement. In those days, Israel had no king. Well, who was God's, who was Israel's king? Israel's king was supposed to be God. They didn't have a man that was their king. God was their king directly. But in the days of the judges, Israel had no king. They had no man to be their king, but they also did not, were not faithful to God as their king. All the people instead did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And in our day, for most people, God is not really king either. And most people just do whatever seems right in their own eyes. When life is pretty good, we forget about God. I mean, why worry about him? Who wants to have a king telling them what to do and how to live their life? Especially if everything's going great. You got money in the bank and you got health. And you got your two cars and you got your house. It's really only when trouble comes that people tend to turn to God. Just like in the days of the judges in Israel. And God hears our cries. We've got cancer. We've got a pandemic brewing. And people cry out to God and God hears our cries and he comes and he rescues. But here's the thing that people forget. Every cycle of sin and distress and repentance is not just a circle. It's a downward spiral that leaves you more and more broken and worse off than you were before. What we all need is a true repentance where we surrender unconditionally to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. Matthew 16, 24. This is not a half-hearted thing. This is complete surrender. This is when you realize that you've got to let go of your life, die to yourself, and take up a cross. A cross an implement upon which they would crucify a man to torture him to death. And when we do this, God gives us a new heart and he fills us with his spirit and he puts his law inside us. And this is eternal life. Won't you turn to Jesus today and let him save you. Not save you just from your current situation, but from your entire broken, sinful life. In doing so, you allow God to begin a brand new epoch in your life. An epoch of eternal life as a citizen in the kingdom of God.